Welcome to Pop Culture Retro, which was recently voted the 15th best podcast by the residents of the Golden Years Retirement Community in Boca Raton, Florida. Each show, we'll revisit some of your favorite pop culture memories with insider and outsider perspectives. Now, please help me welcome your hosts, Ike Eisenman and Jonathan Rosen. Hello and welcome to another edition of Pop Culture Retro. Today we are thrilled to welcome someone who I'm a big fan of. She's an actress who was featured in the popular beach movies. She was the featured singer on the popular program Shindig as a clothing designer. In 1963 became the first and only Dr. Pepper girl. Has appeared on some of the most iconic TV shows of all time, such as the Mickey Mouse Club, the Monkees, and Batman is the host of the podcast, Loves a Secret Weapon. Please help us welcome Donna Lauren. Donna, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, hello. Thank you very much for having me. Well, to start with, you were born in Massachusetts and you started performing quite young. When did you first start realizing that you had a special talent? Gosh, well, we were all born sometime, right? <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> You know, in this lifetime, it happened to be in Newton, Massachusetts, <laughs> kind of a suburb. Um, okay, the um, beginning of my life was kind of chaotic, and um, I was moved to uh, California with my mother, and um, she uh, took up residency in kind of a beach community on the west side of Los Angeles. So I always kind of, you know, I'm a Pisces, I'm a water girl, and I've always chosen to live by the ocean um, until my marriage to, to Jared, uh, who loves the desert. So now I'm getting a taste of that kind of world. But for most of my life, I, I live by the ocean. Awesome. Well, I, I, started my career at nine years old which seemed pretty young to me even at the time um you were kind of pushed into talent shows by the age of six what was it like to be performing and competing at, at such a young age yeah um interesting that relationships between parent and child develop in certain ways and um i think in my particular case that um uh, if you know when listening to my podcast I go into depth about uh, my my memoir of recall and um, and how it's affected me to this day so for details I recommend that anyone tune in um, it there was a dynamic in the relationship between my mother and my adopted father, whom I did not know was my uh, was not my bio daddy for about almost fifty years. Uh, when mm. I discovered much much later on, oh. and he became um, my manager and photographer, and my mother directed the kind of financial burden onto my shoulders and um, both of them sat me down at a very early age and said, we know you can, can produce more than we can. 
and uh, it, it th those are I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> and um, and put me in a very complex uh, position of <laughs> I had no choice but to agree, oh. and because you know we can discuss how a child feels that they they want security, they they want uh, to feel like they belong and. All of those things came up inside me. And um, literally, <laughs> I remember when I was five years old that um, my mother booked me to sing at a veterans hospital in West LA uh, at the Wadsworth Theater, which is still there. And it's a beautiful, beautiful theater. And, um, and I was standing in the dark behind the curtain before I was to go out and sing for um, veterans. Um, and my mother, I'm gonna get very graphic. My mother noticed that um, a bit of uh, pee was trickling down my leg and soiling my socks. Oh, and dear. so she, she um, held her hand out in the dark with a $5 bill, which I, I had never seen anything more than a coin so <laughs> by five years old. And so uh, that was, that was uh, as I take it, a, a bribe to kind of, to, you know, say, let's, let's go, let's go. And, um, and so I opened the curtain and peeked through and the whole theater was lit up um like daylight and i saw men in wheelchairs with tubes you know coming from bottles and you know these these guys let's say that was in the early 50s and so they were veterans from world war ii and and the beginnings maybe of i don't i don't remember korea started in 53 or something like that and um and suddenly I locked into this feeling like I'm supposed to go out there and make these people feel happy. Mm. And so I let my mother's bribe, you know, kind of um, go into the background. And instead I focused on my um, whatever, you know, my, my mission. And, um, I did have a, a pianist that uh, had rehearsed one little song. It was called Enjoy Yourself. And, <laughs> and I just remember they had to lower the microphone down to my level. And, and, and I sang to these men that were handicapped and, and injured and, um, and decided that connecting with people and looking into people's eyes goes beyond their suffering and beyond my own suffering. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that that was a very early kind of awareness that I had mm -hmm. that I was pretty much on my own, even though I lived with mom and this man whom I called dad, but um, I, they put me in a position of taking care of them. Wow. And, and, and somehow, by the grace of, of God, I was gifted with that feeling of responsibility. Mm. 
Interesting. Well, so you, you're doing this for a while. By the, by the time you're eight years old, you already like landed a radio commercial and became a regular on the show, Squeak and Deacon. So what, what's it like for a kid to suddenly hear yourself on the airwaves now? <laughs> well, if it's a good microphone you know, and a good engineer, it's wonderful. <laughs> no, it was, it was definitely, um, it wasn't so much about myself. It was about, again, connecting with others. The commercial I did was with um, this little man who played uh, Speedy Alka-Seltzer. And um, I'm not recalling his name, but he was a darling man, um, just as tall as I was at the time mm. and wearing a suit. And I just recall walking out of the studio after I sang on the commercial that he spoke on for Metagold ice cream and crossing the parking lot to, uh, to his car, which was a big Cadillac and him opening the door and seeing the pedals of the car, like my tricycle had the, you know, booster pedals when your legs can't touch the regular one. And that's what he had in his big car for him to be able to drive away. Oh my goodness. That's fantastic. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> so, so after all this, by, the ten, by 10 years old, you make an appearance on the Mickey Mouse Club appearing with Annette Funicello and you got to sing two songs. I didn't know the gun was loaded and pennies from heaven. And you can watch the clip on YouTube, by the way, you looked so poised and were so great there. How, how did that come about? <laughs> well, <clears throat> again, we lived on the West side and the Disney studios were in Burbank, which um, my dad, actually my adopted dad was an animator at the studio at the time, working on various projects like Lady and the Tramp and Peter Pan and those kinds of oh, wow. animated features. And, um, and so not sure how I got the call, but my mother didn't know how to drive. And so she packed myself and my two little younger brothers, half brothers, um, up to take bus rides from, <laughs> basically we lived in a place called Mar Vista, which is basically Venice, Venice near Venice Beach and Santa Monica Beach. And, um, and went all the way east and all the way north to Burbank, which took seemingly forever. Yeah, that's I, I know how well how long a drive that is. So it must have been like going to another country <laughs> to you. <laughs> and I was nine years old at the time. <laughs> so you know, walking into these enormous sound stages, they're very dark. And unless they're lit up with scenes and so forth. But um, there was a long table and lots of young people with their parents uh, waiting for their turn. And I was called and um, apparently my mother reached my dad uh, and he was able to leave his station and come to the audition. So he's sitting over 
on the side and I come up into the middle of this long table with probably a dozen adults and, um, and perform those two songs, Pennies from Heaven and I Didn't Know the Gun Was Loaded. And they called me over to the table and um, my dad made a beeline to join me. And they said, um, we want you to be a Mouseketeer oh. to me. Hmm. And, and my dad, Maury, intercepted and said, no, she's a solo. <laughs> and wow. that flabbergasted me because of the kind of career pressure they had put on me since such a early age of you know being the one who could support them. And um, my, my dad apparently, even though he was an excellent artist, really didn't love the idea of, of slaving away at the drawing board. So uh, it just never made sense to me that, they, that he would say something like that. That's why I was just a guest on the talent roundup rather than being a, a regular mouseketeer. Oh, wow. oh, good grief. Well, you, 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 I mean, what was it like for you to go from suddenly seeing all these people on such an iconic show like Annette and Jimmy Dodd, then suddenly appearing with them? How did the, how did the cast treat you? Oh, well, you know, we all shared a red schoolhouse trailer on the lot. So it was very, um, how do you say it? I wanna use a word equanimitous. I don't know if that's a correct word, but there is a lot of equality, um, even age-wise, um, there, there was no real competition. I think everyone was there in a happy, happy world of Disney. And um, the director, was a man named Sidney Miller, who had formerly been in, um, what do they call them? Our Gang. Oh, wow. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Our Gang. He was one of the kids. And so he came from that and oh. knew how to treat young people and um, make them feel uh, at home. And uh, everyone had the ability, you know, to perform and everyone acted quite professional. We had a bit of rehearsal for two days and three hours of school each day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't, they, and we all scattered out, you know, in the afternoon, evening and went to our prospective homes and came back uh, to do the filming. I had one little caveat just before I, started rehearsing. I was going to school and uh, I was on the playground playing volleyball. And I went for, you know, the big over the net thing and <laughs> fell straight onto my knees. And so my knees, these like quarter size boo-boos and I showed up you know, with band-aids on my knees. Well, the day of shooting, there was a nurse, you know, for the children on set. And she decided to take my band-aids off and put some pancake makeup 
to cover the scabs. Oh dear. Which uh, wasn't really good. Um, and so she had to take that off with some alcohol or whatever and uh, put the band-aids back on. <laughs> oh so, but, but the other little caveat is that that was my first um, real design venture in the little skirt jumper with suspenders that, that I designed and my mother uh, constructed on the sewing machine and I did all the handwork. So wow. that was my bonus because I, I love to, I, to this day, I, I love making my own clothes and sometimes others. Did, did you ever get to meet Walt? No, never. never. So, so you, you were still in high school when you became the, the face of a company. You became the Dr. Pepper girl. Now, how did that happen? Oh, well, at that time, I was represented by an agency called William Morris. And apparently there was um, a nationwide search, kind of like American Idol, you know, <clears throat> they're auditioning kids from all over the country because Dr. Pepper was being represented by an advertising company that decided uh, they wanted to branch out from coast to coast since Dr. Pepper was more of a regional beverage at the time, South and a Midwest. And so they thought by touching the teenage market, the um, New York and all the way down the East Coast and LA and all the way up the West Coast would expand their, their business. So all I know is that all of a sudden I'm told that I'm taking a plane to Chicago to screen test. And I showed up and it's the first time actually um, that, well, I had been on, no, it's not the first time I was on a plane. It was the second time I was ever on a jet. And now I'm flying first class mm. and getting the red carpet treatment. And Okay. And uh, being shown, they gave me a suite, uh, a block away from, um, what is it? The Lake Michigan? Is that, is that Lake Michigan um, in Chicago? I think so. Mm. At any rate, so here I, here I am and uh, I show up for screen test. And there is this kind of Miss Teenage America girl there sitting on a bar stool that swiveled. And I hear the director tell her, now turn your back to the camera, push off and tell us a little bit about yourself. And so I thought, oh my God, the only thing this girl doesn't have is a tiara. You know, she was so <laughs> perfect. And, um, and then she left and it was my turn. So he gave me the same instruction, climb up on the stool, um, turn your back to the camera, push off. And when you face the camera, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I did, I climbed up and I turned my back to the camera and I pushed off a little too hard. Um, so so I, I went past my mark. Um, so I had to kind of wiggle my way back to center facing the camera. And then I just said, hi, I'm Donna Lauren. And uh, they asked me a few questions and 
that's next thing I knew I was the Dr. Pepper girl. Wow. As you're telling the story, I'm stressing out because, of course, I've auditioned for so many things as well. And you end up in these odd situations where it all seems like it makes sense. But I'm thinking, swirl, how am I going to stop my chair in time? I would be under so much stress over that. I would forget to speak. That's 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 amazing. I love it. So now all of a sudden you're all all over the country and you're doing specials with Dick Clark. So tell us, I mean, how did your life change from that? Hmm. Well, first I had to drop out of high school. I had just mm. entered wow. the 11th grade. Uh, I just turned 16 and um, I enrolled in a private school where I could travel and just send in my, my work so I could graduate. Mm. And um, I signed a seven-year contract, uh, which made my parents extremely happy. And my, my dad, Maury, excuse me, I'll call him Maury from now on because Obviously, that's who he was. Um, he, uh, you know, basically became my photographer and my manager and my chaperone. And uh, the feeling, uh, well, there was, there was this, uh, hmm, how shall I put it, conflict at home because we were gone so much. And so every so often, um, Maury would trade for my mother to go and have an experience every so often to get some uh, attention that she needed and for he to stay home with my two younger half brothers. Um, basically, Ike and Jonathan, it, it really goes back to a very early awareness of connecting with people. Now I'm 1963 to 19, you know, through the civil rights movement, mostly traveling in areas where I'm experiencing the racial strife of, you know, what was happening then. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd encounter restrooms that were differentiated, you know, whites only, blacks only, drinking fountains that were also delineated that way. And, um, you know, it probably gave me an education that I would have never had if I just stayed in school. <laughs> so, so for that, I was um, maybe not grateful at the time because it, it seemed to be very painful. What I did love is every time I uh, cut the red ribbon at a new bottling plant and there was more distribution and more jobs available in these different communities where Dr. Pepper would start branching out, um, pretty much the whole town would show up and support this new venture. And you know, here I was able to make eye contact, usually one-on-one -on -one because Dr. Pepper would have me perform and I'd put on a show and then I'd, um, and with local musicians. So every town was like, I had to rehearse with different musicians all the time. And, um, and then, I, then they'd station me at a table with a stack of photos and long lines of people would very patiently, you know, one by one make contact with me. I'd be able to 
embrace them and you know sign and and it, so for that it was extremely rewarding you know it's making that kind of connection which is my favorite thing mm. so at this point you're, you're the face of a major product you have your own record deal. You're touring all over the country with Dick Clark and meeting all these celebrities. First, like, what what was Dick Clark like, and what's going through your mind at the time? Oh man, well, he was a diehard rock and roller, and he loved soul music, R and B. The whole Motown scene was his. You'd think that you know, a guy from Philly you know, would like all the boy bands and, and he loved that too, but mostly he loved, he really loved the beat and, um, and that kind of Southern flavor of, of where the rock and roll, you know, originated from. And so uh, he and I worked quite closely together doing tours, doing commercials, doing conventions, doing uh, this one special TV show that was, it was live, but it was filmed. So um, it was a, called a celebrity party. And I think that's on YouTube if anybody's curious. And it was kind of like the Hollywood scene at the time at a, um, a like this villa in the Hollywood Hills and and um, and I showed up and my introduction was I'd like to introduce you to Dick Clark. They handed me a microphone and he says, okay, you're co-hosting, let's go. And, you know, and it, it just went like that for until I retired when mm. I was like 21. Wow. <laughs> so, so during this, right after this, like you get you get your first movie role, and and I have to say, I love the beach movies. I they were so much fun to watch. I'd like to go through some of them, starting with your first, which was the second in the series, Muscle Beach Party. It had Frankie Avalon and Ed Funicello, and this, and also had Don Rickles, Buddy Hackett, Maury Amsterdam, oh. Dick Dale, and the first appearance of Stevie Wonder. So how yep. did you come into the beach beach movies? Well, that was another dimension of how Dr. Pepper was going to expand their marketing. So the president of the advertising company was also a screenplay writer. And he co-wrote Muscle Beach Party mm. with the intention of having me as product placement. <laughs> so when you see, you know, there's the first scene I think I'm in, I'm seated at a table at Don Rickles Cafe and um, with a Dr. Pepper bottle. Uh, the music director there heard my commercials and said, okay, well, she can sing. So then I was introduced to Dick Dale. I was told that Brian Wilson co-wrote a song that the Beach Boys were gonna perform. So Brian Wilson went in the studio, produced a track, sang the background, and Dick Dale was gonna do the lead vocal. Now it was gonna become a duet. And that's how all that came about. Wow. <laughs> Good grief. So, so what was it like to see that you're suddenly in a movie with these huge names? And not only that, but you know, with Frankie Avalon and Ned Nuccello, 
So you had your song with Dick Dale. Did this phase you at all that you're now singing on a screen, like, you know, for a movie? You know, when the camera goes on and I see that little red light, it's just like looking in someone's eyes. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm right at home. <laughs> well, that that's that's wonderful so william asher who uh, directed most of the i love lucy episodes and went on to do bewitched was the director um what was what was he like to work with well i never got very close with him because the i would have been in a very long line of beach bunnies um, <laughs> And of course, Dr. Pepper always had a representative on set to watch their investment, uh, you know, <laughs> me. And, um, and then I had either Maury or usually Maury um, within about, you know, a short leash away. So that was uh, never going to happen. And so Bill was usually behind the camera and he didn't really have to do much directing for me because um, it just all kind of fell into place. And with Annette, you, you had met her, you know, as a kid in the Mickey Mouse Club, of course, and then you worked with her on several movies. So what was she like? And do you have a relationship with her? Well, Annette is Annette. I mean, what you see is what you get. <laughs> she is, um, she, you know, in spirit, you know, she's still an angel and she always was. She's just a very gentle soul. And, um, you know, I was, I think, four years younger than her. And at the time, 16 to 20 is kind of an age gap. And she was also involved with, um, romantically involved with Jack Gilardi, who was uh, an agent at the time. And he would hang out on the set. So any free moment she had was with him. Um, but. But we knew each other, and it and that was a, a nice thread. Mm -hmm. How about Frankie? Frankie Avon. Um, Frankie was a teen idol, so he kind of stayed to himself. Um, the people that I resonated with were uh, Bobby Shaw, who was I think a year older than I, and. Um, a little bit Stevie Wonder. He was a little bit younger than me at the time. Mm. And um, and a girl named Meredith McRae, mm -hmm. whose father was Gordon. And um, and she was she was also quite sweet. Other than that, I, I really pretty much stayed, stay, you know, that was it was work. It was my job. Yeah. Well I I totally get that. But speaking of Stevie Wonder, did you get a sense being around him that he would go on to become this musical musical giant? Well, you know, on some of the stage shows that I did, um, he was he was on as well because they were like giant reviews. So they would book me, they would book him, they would book Marvin Gaye, they would book you know, Dionne Warwick, the, the Beach Boys, you know, on these mega review shows. So, you know, he, um, he and I were always kind of passing each other on stage, but I did have an encounter that I think is worthy of, of remembering. Um, many, many, many years later, 
I was at an Apple store and, um, you know, and I was standing all the way in the back with my youngest daughter. And I saw these two bodyguard looking guys. One was super tall. One was like CeeLo Green, you know, this big husky, you know, guy. And, and then someone in the middle and I couldn't quite tell. And my daughter said, I think that's Stevie Wonder. So he comes into the Apple store with his two bodyguards. And suddenly there's this gaggle of girls that are flocked around him trying to get his attention. And, um, and uh, you know, I'm, I don't know, maybe a hundred feet away, you know, the Apple stores are like trains, you know, you walk in and you just get sucked into the back. So, so I, um, I said to my daughter, you know, this isn't something I normally would do, but I don't like the way that he's being treated. You know, it's like, I don't know how comfortable he is. Maybe he is, maybe he likes the attention, but I'm just going to walk over there. So I did. And first thing that happened is the short Husky guy put his arm like Popeye, you know, with a huge <laughs> forearm muscle and stopped me from going any farther. And the interesting thing is about someone like Stevie Wonder who lost his sight, who, you know, compensates as a creative soul, you know, it, it, with heightening his other senses. He sensed something, an energy. And so literally, I don't know if you can see my hands, but mm -hmm. he like parted the way somehow he parted the way and his bodyguards backed off and the girls backed off and he came forward to me and he held out his hand and I held his hand and I told him I said you know we were in movies together and he was just the most lovely human being wow. and you know and then you know then I receded and everybody else kind of came back. <laughs> that was the moment. But I, I thought that that says a lot about, you know, who he is. Oh, oh that's a great story. That's fantastic. Uh, you, and you mentioned, you know, part of the thing about the beach movies, it had so many Hollywood legends throughout them. I mean, you had in Elsa Lanchester, Buster Keaton, Dorothy Lamore. What are some of your memories of working with them? Mm. Well, it's pretty phenomenal being in the same space with a guy like Buster Keaton. Mm. And he was, he was a little like Groucho. You know, you'd see him kind of bending his knees, you know how Groucho hunkers down a little bit. And, um, and then he's chasing girls, you know, he's like, <laughs> never off, always on. But that was Buster <laughs> Keaton. And then, of course, the... Um, King of Comedians and, and his group, Don Rickles and all the other guys, um, you just wanted to give them their own space because they were very um, like razor sharp about, you know, hitting you below the belt and seeing how tough you were. They couldn't get to me because like I said, I was always surrounded by Dr. Pepper and they knew who was sponsoring the movie. So I was safe. <laughs> 
but I, I'm sure if you spoke with anyone else that they'd have a different story. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So Tommy Kirk had the lead role opposite Annette instead of Frankie Avalon, and he had a smaller role. How do you, I mean, how do you throw, what was going on with that dynamic? You'd have to ask the producers. Oh, okay. <laughs> maybe Frankie was busy on tour. Maybe he was making a re record. Who knows? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> also, Tommy Kirk was part of the Disney family, wasn't he? Yeah. Mm. So maybe there was a connection there. I never really thought about it. Mm. Yeah, he was a Mouseketeer, right? <clears throat> And I watched the movies again this this past weekend, and you know, I, like I said, I love the movies. What I didn't realize was when I think of the beach movies, in my mind, you're such a huge part of them, and you because you sang in each one. And I also think the same for Candy Johnson, who who danced prominently in every in every movie. But then I saw that you know you only had dialogue in one movie, and her in, her in one movie as well. I mean, my mind was blown. <laughs> what what was, what was going through mine? How come they did that? Hmm. You're asking me questions. I don't have answers. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I'm blank. Yes, it was so odd to me. So I want to talk about Beach Blanket Bingo then. It's on several lists, including Funniest American Movies and America's Greatest Music and Movies. Paul Lynn was in it as well, you know, Linda Evans. And what many people call your signature song, It Only Hurts When I Cry, came from that movie. What were your thoughts when you first heard the song? Did you love it right away? Mm. Well, I really enjoyed singing all of the songs in those movies. Um, but that was especially wonderful because Guy Hemrick, uh, one of the composers, became very um, kind of um, more friendly. Um, and so he got to know me a little better rather than just someone writing a song and saying here. Uh, so he wrote it for me. And that was, uh, that made it extra special. But I do wanna say to you that I believe that the Beach Party soliloquy is more about the ocean and surfing and West Coast um, Malibu kind of environment than even the cast members. Um, because so many people in the world don't ever have an opportunity to see the ocean. They don't know what it smells like. They've never been in a wave. You know, they don't know the experience of, you know, what lives in the ocean because they don't come into contact with it. And, and then the, the iconic feeling of like a Duke of Hanamoko, and then it becomes more trendy. But even in the 60s, it wasn't. It was still more or less a very uh, spiritual, religious experience. And, you know, you, you had to be a member to, to participate. Now it's, it's more of a sport. Uh, unless you go to certain beaches all over the world, and I'm sure that it's still quite exclusive that you know you 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 know because of the waters and it you know for me anyway it it's experiential and yes it's silly and 
and it's fun and it's colorful and it's from a, the mid-century. But literally, you know, as I traveled and promoted the movies, um, that was really what came through is that so many people have never seen the ocean. Mm. That's, that is amazing. And it's something that I, even I forget uh, being, being in, in films most of my life. And of course, growing up in Los Angeles, it was just right there. I went to the beach every weekend, practically. Um, you, you, one takes these things for granted and, you, and, and that perspective is really powerful. I think that's amazing. So um, any other um, prominent memories from Beach Blanket Bingo? Ah, Beach Blanket Bingo. I think um, being able to record the um, soundtrack when Capitol uh, Records, that was my recording company, um, asked me, they singled me out, you know, uh, they didn't ask Annette, they didn't ask Frankie, they asked me to suddenly do the soundtrack for Beach Blanket Bingo. And um, that was quite an honor. Um, and the, you know, the tower of uh, Capitol Records, you're probably familiar with. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and Studio A, which is the big studio down in their lower extremity. Uh, with microphones that people like Frank Sinatra and, you know, classics um, have used and the sound of the studio. Uh, so being in that room with the um, wrecking crew, which was the A-list musicians in Los Angeles and a uh, full, you know, a full band. I think there were 14 guys there and uh and vocalists and we all perform live mm. for 14 hours uh started in the morning and you know went through and uh completed every song during that session came back one other time to just you know do a little touch up here and there but primarily it was a live performance which if you've ever had the experience of walking into a recording studio um, and being elevated, literally your feet are lifted off the floor. The vibe is so powerful that mm. when you've got that many musicians in a room and they're all of that quality um, and everyone's you know, mic'd and, and the engineer is like, take one. And sometimes it was only take one. You did a little rehearsal and then ready to go because they were all pros. Mm -hmm. And I knew all the songs. So boom, you know, we just put it out there. And by the end of the day, oh yeah, H.B. Barnum was our uh, arranger. So, <laughs> so you, you know, you had these amazing, amazing, people in the same room for all those hours and it, I think it um it really kind of how do you say that was conveyed onto the vinyl mm. so yeah I would say that that was a highlight of Beach Blanket Bingo for me well speaking about singing you you, you were the featured singer on the music tv show Shindig and it's such a great show. I've watched clips from that show for years. All the biggest acts of the time are on it. Uh, you work with Tina Turner, The Righteous Brothers, Sam Cooke, Sonny and Cher, and so many more. 
and you worked a lot with Bobby Sherman, who, who I love actually. My daughter's actually a big fan now as well. But what was that whole wow. experience like? Yeah, she loves it. She loves that. What was it like working with Bobby and being on that show and getting to sing every week? Oh man, another highlight. Seriously, um, more about the producer of the show, Jack Good, who was an English fellow. Excuse me, who was really into pop culture and knew the Beatles and um, knew the Stones. And when he came to America and started Shindig, he um, wanted to bypass or actually confront the uh, racial issues in this country. And so he booked The Blossoms, which featured Darlene Love, and he put you know, Jerry Lee Lewis next to Jackie Wilson on the same show or, um, you know, he um, he defied kind of the uh, the, the um, conflicts that were happening in, in America. And then all of the English people that he knew um, started coming over to promote their work. And, you know, they, some of them got to go on Ed Sullivan, but that was sugar-coated and watered down, you know, the, because of, of the audience that Ed Sullivan was appealing to. Um, Jack kept everything raw. And, um, and he treated me so lovingly and his assistant as well, who was this young guy that he brought over from England who um, his name is David Mallet. And he used to select some of the songs. He selected Shaken All Over for me to do, which was really out of character. And I'm shocked that Dr. Pepper even <laughs> allowed me to do something like that because um, yeah, David, David wanted to shake it up and, and so did Jack. He, he, they were like, wait a minute, she's, she's more than the girl next door. So. Um, and then singing with Bobby um, was uh, a really fun experience. And um, later on in life, many, many years later, he, he proposed that he and I do a remake of Searchin, which we did you know, together on the show. And, and I'm still waiting. <laughs> well speaking of bobby are you still you're still waiting so you're are you still in contact with him or or not um you know that was a few years ago so you know with the world turned upside down it's been a little while mm -hmm. <laughs> well you on some of the biggest hits of the 60s and shows which still remain popular to this day batman with adam west and the monkeys uh first batman you you were in a couple of episodes were those as much fun as they looked? And I read that your kiss with Bert Ward prompted a ton of emails, mail at the time. I know. Well, that was a promotion for TV Guide. And, um, you know, Bert was kind of an innocent guy. And I, I think that's just in his nature. He loves animals and that's how he's directed his life. Um, that, I think Batman was his first acting gig. Mm -hmm. I hmm. think. And so, you know, basically it was kind of funny because every day that I showed up on set, you know, chaperoned, um, 
yeah, I would be greeted by Adam West, you know, with a kiss and um, and a welcome. But when it came time to do this promotion with Bert, you know, he's standing there kind of angelic, like he's in a chorus or, you know what I mean? A little, <laughs> like a choir boy stance with his hands folded and, and I'm kissing him on the cheek. So it was, it was a promotional kind of situation, which I think um, they made a little bit bigger deal of. <laughs> well, you are also the romantic interest for Davy Jones in your episode of The Monkees. Um, tell us about filming that episode. What was that like? Yeah, well, he wanted to take it further, but, uh, you know, I had to go, no. Nope. Um, <laughs> but, of course, you know, he's another teen idol that probably, you know, had that had, had that whole experience. But he was he was a very kind of generous. In fact, all of them um, were very, very generous um, with with how their how their lives were, uh, you know, put together and suddenly they become the monkeys. And I fell in love with their music. So that's pretty much what I prioritized. I did have a run in with the director on one scene that he just zoomed in really, really close. And it was like Davy and I were exchanging lines. And he said, I love your eyes. And I said, I love your eyes. And we went back and forth. And, and apparently on one of, one of the close-ups of me, I started doing a little bit of Elvis like, like that. And the, <laughs> and the director was like, no, don't do that. And so I had to take two. And and you were on the, the Milton Berle show in the 60s, which featured Bobby Rydell. I got to interview Bobby last year. He couldn't have been nicer. Uh, could you tell us about that experience? And, and were you in touch with Bobby through the years? Actually, Bobby was recently on my, before he passed away, he was on my podcast. Awesome. So we did, we, we did uh, have that exchange. And yes, he's a, he was a very, very down-to-earth guy with a great voice and um and uh musicianship that i i recall but a very 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 unassuming and you know no pretension about him himself just very very professional um so doing the milton burl show though and meeting milton burl again you know, I was always in this safety zone protected by, you know, being a representative of a company. So I was never approached or taken advantage of, which I feel very blessed. Um, and my nature wasn't, you know, trying to defy those rules either. So I was, I was staying within the working ethic. But um Okay, one experience, there was a singer named Eddie Fisher, who was Carrie Fisher's father. And he was a great singer in the 50s, maybe even into the 60s, I don't recall. Well, yeah, into the 60s, mostly I believe earlier. He had a really great voice. So he was featured on one of the shows and during the taping of the dress rehearsal, which Milton Berle 
always had two tapings so that you know you had something to choose from between two performances and there were two audiences at the Hollywood Palace Theater right across the street from Capitol wow. and um, it was a beautiful beautiful big stage well um, so Eddie Fisher shows up one day and he does, he sings his song and, um, and that's filmed. Then he comes back for the actual performance and he's had a little bit too much to drink and couldn't pull it off as well. As a matter of fact, he, he was just not in good shape at all. And so good thing, you know, I was 19 at the time and literally, uh, the first time that I had seen someone just step away from, you know, from being as good as they are, you know, whatever. He was probably in the middle of his emotional situation between two stars, of, you know, leaving one wife, getting involved in another. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor could probably drive you to, dr no, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I never met her. I never met her. She's <laughs> I'll stop. Well, okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were going to go on. All right. We'll just leave it there. So in the late 60s, you're still extremely popular. And then you decide to walk away from, from all that fame to focus on family. How, how difficult was that decision for you? Hmm. Well, I was, um, I was chosen to, to do um, a pilot for my own series. It was called Two for Penny. And there was a movie um, called Love with a Proper Stranger that starred Natalie Wood and Steve McQueen about this Greek uh, family who uh, had this girl and two older brothers who were very overprotective of her. Girl played by Natalie Wood who falls in love with someone out of her religion and, and uh, culture, Steve McQueen, and the brothers go haywire trying to keep her away from them, from him. Well, the writer, Arnold Schulman of that film adapted it for television and went to Aaron Spelling and Danny Thomas to, uh, to do a pilot for a series. And, um, and I was chosen to do the part of Natalie Wood and Bill Bixby was uh, my love interest. Oh. And um, so we did an hour presentation. Danny Thomas played a Greek priest. And that was toward the end of 67. So I was still about 20 years old. And uh, the network played it and then they played it again and they decided that um, the Greek ethnicity was not going to sell too much to the culture of America at the time. So they decided not to go forward with it. And that came up to March when I turned 21 and I was planning on getting married. And soon after I married, and I was still working for Dr. Pepper, suddenly my new mother-in-law passed away. 
And um, there were uh, oh, just uh, oh, too many, too many things to get into. Again, I go into this on my podcast mm -hmm. just to, you know, explain to myself what happened um, and share it with with my listeners and uh, and discuss it with my collaborator psychologist, Dr. Adam Garache, who is in Adelaide, Australia, and helps me make sense of a lot of things and uh, <laughs> get makes my heart happy. Seriously, uh, so so there were a sequence of events that that happened, and then the whole calamity of working for Dr. Pepper and my relationship with my parents and my new husband and you know and this tragic sudden death um, just all built up and. I decided, uh, and then I, I became pregnant and uh, decided to call the chairman of the board of Dr. Pepper and tell him that, you know, I was about to have a child. I mean, it was just in the beginning. Um, I had received a call from Maury telling me, well, now you can work 60% of the time and stay home 40% of the time. Hmm. And I stood up to him literally the first time and said, no, I'm going to be uh, committed to my, my child. I want him to know who I am. Thank God. Um, and I'm so grateful for having a you know wonderful relationship with my son. And, um, and without getting into all the details, uh, I just asserted myself and went to, you know, after I talked to the CEO and, um, and then I told my parents the action that I took, um, they were not happy, um, but, you know, they kind of lived their lives through me for the first 21 years of my life. So it was about time for me to take the reins and that's what I did. Mm. Mm. Well, I, I see, you know, you've been you've been recording and performing again, and you recently released uh, the song God Only Knows on your YouTube, uh, which, which, by the way, I loved that I love I downloaded oh, it. Thank you. Yes. No. How rewarding is it to still be able to do what you love and have a fan base that is so receptive to everything? Oh, that's so kind of you. Well, Jonathan, you know, God Only Knows is a famous Beach Boy song um, from Pet Sounds. But my God Only Knows came as an inspiration about 10 years ago. Uh, oh, not quite 10 years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago after I moved back from living in Hawaii for many years and came back to California and started reckoning with the climate change issues. And, and so uh, this little song just came to me. And um, I have a friend who has a studio and and a few musicians and actually I sang the background voices. I played keyboard, I played synth and, um, and I had an engineer and he just went in the studio because studio is like second home to me and, um, and did that. And just singing to me um, is just my, I don't know, it's, I guess you can say it's my identity, but it's also my age gauge because, <laughs> because 
I started, you know, singing, I recall clearly around two and, um, and I haven't stopped and I'm 75 now. <laughs> well, we certainly hope you never do. So you've, you've, you've mentioned uh, your, your podcast numerous times, which is called Love is Love's a Secret Weapon, named after your song for Bikini Beach. Tell us a little bit more about the pod, uh, podcast and what it entails. Well, thank you, Ike. I, I believe a lot of us, when the pandemic started in what, March of 2020, thought, what in the world? How can I channel my creativity and not feel so, you know, deprived of going anywhere or, you know, or falling into a pattern of fear? And so um, I contacted Dr. Adam in Australia, who had uh, helped me for quite a few years in collecting my memoir information. And it was in the form of a manuscript. So um, I said, you know, so many people uh, read their own literature. Um, I'd like to do that, but in the form of a podcast. I'd like to start reading my memoir. And I'd like for you and I to discuss chapter by chapter. Hmm. And when, uh, when we come to a certain point, if, if there's someone in my life that wants to be a guest, and we can go further into it, or, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be showbiz, it can be someone personal, or, you know, someone in the background, um, that, uh, that's been my format, and we've done, we actually, we just completed our third season. Wow, my gosh. I'm up to chapter 17, <laughs> <laughs> and every chapter is the name of a song that I recorded. This one is called 90 day guarantee. What a great look up, yeah, look up that song. I I think that song, hmm. I know I wanted I want to say that there's a there's a form of music called what's it called in England? It's called Northern Soul. Mm -hmm. And um and some of my songs uh have that kind of specter sound. Uh, a little bit of Motown, a little bit of Spectre in arranging. And I think 90 Day Guarantee is one of the songs on Northern Soul. Yeah. Well, I I've listened to several of, of the podcast episodes and enjoy it. And like you said, they're all memoir based. Have you thought about releasing a memoir? Well, at this point, um, I have a book that is published mm -hmm. and it's called Pop Culture. And, um, and it's, it's um, a photographic journal archive of my own personal collection of, of you know, the first 21 years of, of my life. And, and the publishing business is something that uh, I just didn't feel like pursuing. You know, I mean, it's, it's another world and doing a podcast fulfills so many different aspects rather than you know just putting something down on paper and and then there's paper you know <laughs> paper and ink and you know all the things that go along with that which actually my first book 
went through a second printing and uh, supposedly is going to be printed again uh, because it's sold out and who knows, you know, with, with everything that's happening in the environment, the resources are getting more and more limited. As a matter of fact, I have these friends who, who cut a record and were looking for a source to do vinyl. And they went to every resource they could in this country and they couldn't find vinyl. They had to go to oh. Czechoslovakia to find a company that would press vinyl for them because Adele came to the US and I don't know where else and kind of, you know, maxed out the resource of vinyl so um you know we have we're at a time in 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 our lives on this planet where um i think we have to take into consideration all of these all of these resources and and then the energy you know it's like on my podcast even though i'm talking about what happened to me before um i do incorporate a, a presence of mind because I have learned so much along the way so that you know when I'm reflecting it's it's um it's like it's what I've learned to be who I am now and um and I think that's really important not to be stuck in the past which um you know could tend to happen but to me what's happening now with war i mean not to uh get into that whole group but you know war is 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 a measure of what you know the past can bring and that is certainly not good for our future should you ever decide to do a memoir you and jared reach out <laughs> so. oh thank you <laughs> well, i uh... I see on your social media, your fans are very engaged. How often do they reach out to you? Well, I have to say probably daily. I have to look over to Jared because <laughs> I, I, I'm either busy sewing or cooking or gardening <laughs> or, or communicating or writing or singing or something. Um, so, so Jared is, is very good at uh, the practical aspect of, of our lives. You know? <laughs> That's great. Well, aside from your podcast, will you be doing any shows in the near future? Mm, I'm pretty happy at home. <laughs> and um, I think that that's probably the only time I've really performed in the last decade uh, was was when I was asked to participate in uh, a fundraiser or something like that, or a friend would say, you know, come on and sing a song or two with, with me or us. And um, so when I retired at 21, I, with only one exception, when I launched my pop culture book in 2016, my uh, co-author at the time, Dominic Priore, who is a pop culture author, decided to do a book launch at something called Tiki Oasis, which takes place in San Diego. And, um, and so literally, I had not performed for 50 years. 
Oh. And um, and I put a band together and um, and did a perform one performance after 50 years and and really that was that was it and and that's that's fine with me. Um, I think my position and my energy is more esoteric and I'm I'm constantly as you know connecting either on a physical or etheric level with people all over the world, not just people, but all life on planet Earth. Uh, well, Donna, we want to thank you so much for coming on today. I mean, I, like I said, I've been a fan for a long time and was really looking forward to this. So and you, it's Jonathan. such a pleasure to get to speak to you. Thank you, and, honey. Uh, well, you don't look old enough to have seen Shindig. And then you have <laughs> Kyle who's watching it as well. <laughs> like I said, I watched the beach movie since I was a kid, and I watched the clips. So <laughs> always, okay, well, thanks, always. Thanks for keeping pop culture alive. <laughs> and you're welcome back anytime. Thank you, thank you, Ike. Well, oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, this is I'm Jonathan Rosen along with Ike Eisenman. This has been Pop Culture Retro, and again, very special thanks to Donna Lauren. And please subscribe. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Retro, where no one was hurt during the making of this podcast.